I believe we can shape democracy for the better, but this week I had a real crisis of faith. So what's got me worried? And what are we gonna do? Hey there, I'm Joshua Johnson, and the Nightlight is on. Democracy is all about finding common ground to solve common problems. But when we view each other as the problem and ourselves as the solution, that gets a lot harder. I vented about this in a recent article and a number of you resonated with it. I'll share some of my thoughts next. Then more of your questions from our first Ask Me Anything. We talked about everything from my unique philosophy of journalism to how to ask me out on a date. So be sure to follow me on social media at Joshua Listening, just in general, not for a date. And I always love to hear from you. So email me, joshua at nightlightshow.com. Of all the things that set me off this week, a call with my accountant. I'll get to that in a minute. The first job of democracy is to prevent political violence. When I launched this program, I described it as a show about democracy. It's about the connections we form when we interact in this society, the ones that frustrate us and the ones that can solve our shared problems. Reconnecting to one another, or in some cases connecting for the first time, is vital to American democracy. And that's not in a partisan or an ideological sense. Some things are truly meant for the common good, for everyone to benefit together, whether they like each other or not. But look around. The signs of this system unraveling seem to be everywhere. This week, I read about an extensive playbook developed by the Heritage Foundation, a conservative think tank. The idea? Dismantle and remake the federal government, starting on day one, if former President Donald Trump wins a second term in 2024. The idea is to get thousands of people ready to metaphorically tear down much of what we know in Washington. And yes, I mean metaphorically. Heritage is not advocating physical violence. Now, this plan, called Project 2025, would include firing thousands of non-political civil servants en masse. Many of them are subject to rules that control the pace of hiring and firing. These rules are meant to prevent some of the sweetheart political patronage jobs of the past. This plan includes reclassifying them so they can be fired like at-will employees. Not in service to the country overall, just to a conservative agenda, presumably, with Donald Trump at the top. Now, granted, supporters of this plan argue that it is in the country's best interest to do this. But if it was progressives talking about purging the United States government, I would be equally worried. Regardless of that, I fear that we will see more of what we've seen in the past. American politics getting increasingly vicious and, at times, violent. I firmly believe that the first job of democracy is to prevent political violence. And no one is as violent as a sore loser. Back in 1861, sore losers fired on Fort Sumter in South Carolina and started the Civil War. Germany's sore losers of the 1930s built the Nazi party. They had also staged a failed insurrection called the Beer Hall Putsch 
That was before rebuilding their movement and winning elections. This November marks 100 years since the Beer Hall Putsch. And on January 6th, 2021, sore losers killed cops and attacked their own government at the U.S. Capitol. More of them are being sentenced to long prison terms as we speak. Even if Mr. Trump wins, that might also embolden people to commit acts of violence. I mean, after all, who's going to stop them? Who in the federal government would stand against them when the president and his administration are either supporting or ignoring them? Mr. Trump had to be urged into denouncing the neo-Nazis who marched through Charlottesville, Virginia, and into denouncing white supremacists and QAnon followers. Why would he be any different this time around? The hatefulness unleashed in the last few years remains with us. I mean, we recently saw the man who shot up that Walmart in El Paso, Texas, sentenced on hate crime charges. A teenager is facing murder charges for stabbing a gay man through the chest at a gas station in Brooklyn, New York. That man, O'Shea Sibley, was just dancing. The suspect allegedly shouted anti-gay slurs at him, demanding that he stop dancing, then making him stop by killing him. No one is as violent as a sore loser. We just marked the 60th anniversary of the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. That's where the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. gave his I Have a Dream speech. As the nation marked that anniversary, a white 21-year-old shot three black people dead at a convenience store in Jacksonville, Florida on the same day as the anniversary. Jacksonville's sheriff says the shooter then killed himself. It happened near Edward Waters College, one of Florida's four historically black colleges and universities. I highly doubt the timing or the location were coincidences. This came after my native state of Florida has not only watered down its African-American history curricula in public schools, but also blocked public school districts from offering the corresponding advanced placement course. Most of my days are spent figuring out what to do next. What segment to book for the podcast, what essay to write, what project to start, what aspect of charting the next chapter of my career to focus on. And this stage of my life feels like a chance to offer you a unique service, something that will have meaning, something that can get results, something that will bring hope and confidence through the darkness of these times. And then I spoke to my accountant. I looked at the pile of work I need to do to get things in order to just be a good administrator of this enterprise. And my heart sank. In that instant, I fell backwards into burnout. I thought, what's the point of all this? Is this working? Is this even gonna work? And what would working look like anyway? I spent 20 years building a career in broadcasting, busting my ass, grinding and grinding, trying to be perfect at all times for what? What results do I have to show for it? What results is this new thing gonna get? And if it doesn't make an impact, then why bother? Burnout is real. This week, <laughs> I felt the fizzle. Now, let me be clear. I'm not giving up on the nightlight. The show's gonna go on. And I'm not giving up on democracy or on the need to foster human connection. But I feel like, like I have to give up something 
to make room for what needs to happen next. If only I knew what that was or what needed to be next or even how to articulate what I'm looking for. I mean, if only I felt like there were more people doing this work, trying to create civic spaces, physical and digital, where all kinds of people could connect and form the social bonds that democracy depends on. Yes, I know the most hardcore people probably would not show up for that. But forget about them. What about the ones who would show up? What's there for them? In a nation of ideological silos, is no one tending the fields? Is no one cultivating the spaces where great things can grow? We don't just need more unity. We need more opportunity. Democracy cannot happen in your comfort zone. Grain don't grow in a silo. If we cannot build better release valves for our political tensions, more open spaces for people to connect, there will be more political violence. Those connections will be messy and loud and sometimes rude, but I will gladly take that over the alternative. And believe it or not, connections like this work extremely well. When I hosted 1A on NPR, we traveled the country often doing live audience events. The topics were touchy, but we talked about everything, about oil and gas, about voting, politics on college campuses, connecting liberals and conservatives, and more. Now, of all the events we did, not one of them devolved into chaos or shouting. Zero. And you know why? I believe it's because the people who attended realized that they had nowhere else in their lives to have conversations like that. The minute they left the venue, it was back to normal. And this vibrant, meaningful space disappeared like Brigadoon. So they treated it with care. They did the work of regulating themselves. And they had a blast. I mean, <laughs> do you, you know one of the first complaints we got when we started doing those events? People complained that they wanted us to serve refreshments. And not just for the obvious reasons. It's because... They wanted somewhere to gather after the program to keep the conversation going. They really did not want to leave. Few things have ever made me that proud. You might be amazed at how amazing people can be. But I wish it wasn't so amazing, though. I wish you could just turn on the TV or the radio or go on social media and see and hear these kinds of interactions all the time. Are you old enough to remember talk shows? I mean, real talk shows, Ricky and Jenny and Montel and Donahue and Sally Jesse and of course, Oprah. It used to be that people sat next to each other all the time on live television and talked about the most controversial, sometimes sleazy things imaginable. All that stuff you don't dare say around the Thanksgiving table. We used to talk about it on national television five days a week. And it worked because it felt ordinary, because everyday people did it all the time. They were unpolished, sometimes inarticulate. They didn't always ask brilliant questions. They were perfect. They reflected America back to itself. It was the opposite of social media in some ways. I mean, think about it. Social media rewards us for being shiny or being clever. Talk shows reward us 
for being real. That was more than enough, with the right host to moderate. And because you were constantly shown how good a talker, and more importantly, a listener, anyone could be, it didn't seem that shocking. Until Jerry Springer ruined everything, but I digress. Now we live in a society where just the thought of people voicing their differences, especially face-to-face, seems weird, risky, or worse, dangerous. We are at risk of losing a skill that democracies have had basically since ancient Greece. Civic dialogue. Not just civil, meaning courteous, polite, but civic, focused on the community. Without that skill or places to use it, we stay in our corners, talk to people who echo our views back to us, and we mock people who try to stay out of the fray. Now, cable news and, of course, social media make this all too easy to do and too hard to find anything else. Having worked for MSNBC, I see the problem even more acutely now. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't regret working for MSNBC. It was an amazing experience. And those kinds of more ideological spaces can be okay in and of themselves. People have the right to hear other points of view critiqued in cogent, insightful, creative ways. That is a good thing. My real problem is not the presence of criticism. It's the absence of connection. It's not that people on Fox News or MSNBC target each other's perspectives. The problem is... They never say it to each other's faces. And I find that kind of television boring as hell. Valuable, certainly lucrative, and also boring. It's a formula, and that means it's gotten stale. If you don't think it's a formula, then why do some hosts have so many people who can fill in for them? So many people who can just show up and do their time slot. Look, I know from experience, having built national shows before, when a show really depends on its particular host's voice, finding substitute hosts can be very tough. But look how many people fill in for your favorite cable news personalities, some of them anyway. Television is an industry. It's an assembly line. And an assembly line loves interchangeable parts. I know saying that out loud might cost me some friends in this business. I know, I know. And so might saying this. But it needs to be said. Some cable news commentators, not all, but some, are actually playing the exact same game regardless of their politics. They never risk defeat. And they always come off looking their best. So they have a mutual interest in avoiding true engagement. We stay mad, they stay rich, and nothing gets better. Look, don't just tell me your strong point of view. Show me. Get in there with a worthy opponent, and then when the clock hits zero, we'll see who has the most points. Get some W's, get some L's, but please get in the game. Today's politics has very few winners, and only really at election times. That is not enough to vent the constant tension between voting cycles. To do that, we need more chances to connect and more places to compete. We don't just need more unity. We need more opportunity. 
Americans deserve every opportunity to know, question, befriend, confront, collaborate with people from different walks of life and different points of view. We are way past the days of taboo topics and polite conversation. Everything must be on the table. Not every table all the time, <laughs> granted, right? You need a break now and then. But you deserve to be able to look your fellow Americans in the eye, those who are willing to look back at you, of course, and have meaningful, transformative conversations. They should not be rare, and they should not be rationed. They should be everywhere, for everyone. And damn it, I wish I knew how to do it. <laughs> That's what's got me so goddamn frustrated. I mean, the nightlight feels like a great vehicle for inspiration, for insight, for community. I believe it can do a lot of good, if only it was enough. But our vicious, vitriolic political culture is not getting better on its own. Media outlets, including some that I once worked for, are not helping. I doubt they even see this problem. Or if they do, they don't know what to do about it, so they just keep on doing what they've always done. I tried to make positive change inside those organizations. Maybe I succeeded? Like a little? Well, now we have a new chance to make something that gets results, that has staying power, that actually affects our politics and our people in positive ways. Something that empowers you, whoever you are, to be an even greater force for the common good. The alternative is much worse and the cavalry is apparently not coming. I guess that means we're it. That's my existential crisis in a nutshell. Thanks to those of you who wrote me about this after you read my article on Substack at nightlightshow.com. It was a very low moment. This has been a really hard week and your support has meant a lot to me. Thank you, thank you, thank you. One thing that did become clear to me, this podcast has got to be more of a relief, a pressure valve to cope with the pressures of democracy today, not just to think about them. The nightlight should be smart and insightful and it always will be, yes, but also enjoyable and fun. I mean, sometimes I have finished doing this show and could practically feel myself unclench and unpucker. And I thought, well, that's not the vibe. <laughs> this should not feel so heavy all the time. And that's why I'm so grateful to those of you who came to hang out with me on my Ask Me Anything live stream on YouTube. We will do more of those, but in case you missed it, you'll hear some of what we discussed in that live stream just ahead. Stay close. This is The Nightlight. I'm Joshua Johnson. Before my little intellectual meltdown, I actually had a great time doing an Ask Me Anything live on YouTube. Just a handful of us got together for that live stream. My partner called it a seminar, which is a very sweet and loving way of saying, Where is everybody? <laughs> but really, 
It was a ton of fun, about a dozen of us connecting and sharing with each other. Many thanks to the paid subscribers who got first dibs on questions and to everyone who submitted questions, including live in the YouTube chat. We will definitely do more live streaming very soon, but here is some of what you might have missed from last week's Ask Me Anything. Let me start with a question from Jackie, who asked on Substack, when did you know you wanted to be a journalist, and by extension, that you wanted to go into radio? I'd love to know more about your origin story, and then maybe a little on how you chose to make some of your major career moves, and how those came out. I didn't know I wanted to be a journalist for a while. I knew I wanted to go into radio, or more to the point, into broadcasting, when I was probably like five or 10 years old for sure. I was thoroughly captivated by age five. By the time I was 10, I was, I was absolutely certain. I've told this story before, but my, my family likes to tell the story because they like telling embarrassing stories about me because it's, it's, it's how we show love. Of me as a little kid with like a stick interviewing people as if the stick was a microphone. Oh wow, it's a storm outside, it just kicked up. Uh, if you hear any rustling in the background, it's it's the, the water and the wind that just kicked up. Hopefully the stream will stay alert and the power will stay on, fingers crossed. But I was a little kid walking around interviewing people and I would go up to them and say, excuse me, my name is Johnson Johnson and I just wanted to know, do you know how a carburetor works? And I would put the stick in their face as if it was a microphone. I had just learned how it worked myself. And if they did not know how it worked, I was delighted to tell them. And the response was something to the effect of, oh, okay, thank you. Now to this day, I do not remember how a carburetor works, but I remember how I felt when I told them and the validation I got for demonstrating my knowledge. I was always raised to be studious, but I also had this kind of innate gift of gab and when I realized that there was a, a job that kind of melded those two together, I was like, that, that's it. And then I grew up watching a lot of game shows and talk shows and programs that had a lot of real person interaction that always appealed to me. I think news came a little bit later because I had originally dreamed about being like an actor or, or a TV host or something like that. And that was sort of where my head was at. But then as I got, gained a sense of civic duty, I thought that maybe journalism was a way to put my smarts to use for other people in a way that had practical application and that would really make an impact on the world. I think once I started to realize the impact of uh, life as a black man in America, once I kind of understood what it meant to be black, then... I felt a deeper sense of a civic responsibility to be verbal and vocal and active and, and to sort of, to, to make change with the words that I said. And that's when it began to sort of click for me that there was another way to make meaning, that there was another way to interact with the world that had currency, that was creative, and that was useful, that would be validated by other people. That's what I kind of knew, but I knew from a very, very early age. As far as the major career moves and how those came about, those came about in a lot of different ways. I mean, I was on track to be 
a doctor at one point. My mother had kind of finagled me into this summer program at Temple University School of Medicine in Philadelphia, which was geared toward students of color who were interested in medical research careers. I was not interested in medical research in the least. I'm increasingly interested in this rain, Lord Jesus. But I was not interested in medical research in the least, but my mother was like, try it. If you don't like it, you don't have to do it again. She was teaching there at the program, teaching research skills. My mother was a librarian. And she said, just come with me and we'll try it. So I went, tried it, liked it. I was like, okay, this is kind of cool. And to this day, my science education has made me a way better journalist. I've gained a lot from studying the sciences because it taught me about information, facts, logic, evidence, how we know that we know what we know. And as a journalist, that's kind of a vital skill set, right? So it gave me a different way to engage with the world as a thoughtful person. But over time, I got really clear that, like, that's not going to be my life. You know, I, I did three summers in Philadelphia, took a summer off, and then did three summers at partner schools of the program in Canada. McGill University in Montreal, the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, and the University of Toronto in Toronto. And in every single one of those summers, I, like, I got more and more captivated by film and TV and theater and other things. I was like, I can't, I can't do this. I have to go chase what I love. I didn't know how all of this was gonna lock together, but I figured that eventually it would. And so for me, it was, it was less about making career moves necessarily than it was about just being clear on the person that I am and the things that I needed to be happy and being willing to leap without a net, to just kind of jump and trust that my wings would emerge as I fell. And it's always happened. I'm counting on that to happen this time with this venture. But it's always kind of worked out that way, that I sort of leap and then the net appears or the wings emerge. And that's sort of the way that it's gone, not really through saying, I wanna go that way and do that thing, but by saying, I am this person and I'm going to try to attract to me experiences that thoroughly honor and validate the person I am. Some have, some have not, some have in bits and pieces and then not in other ways, but that's always sort of been my North Star in terms of how I approach those kinds of things. So good question, Jackie. Thank, I hope that answers your, your question somewhat. But there's, there have been a lot of moving pieces to that, and it's not always been about being able to say, I want that job. I wish the job existed that I really wanted. I think that's why I've bounced from job to job so much, because there's no template, right? There's no one way to, to go about all of this. And that's been sort of the big challenge for me is figuring out where I fit in. Let me get to another question. Thank you for that question, by the way. Appreciate it. Let me get to another question. Let's see, that's Jackie's. So I'm gonna cross that one off my list so I know I've already read it. There we go. And I got a little Google Doc that's got a whole bunch of questions on there. I'm going to... Let's get to Larry's question. Larry in Philly asked, he asked by email, where are you physically based now, New York City or elsewhere? And then he also wrote, you recently posted about the response to an online app personal. Are you single? If so, how does someone ask you out on a date? Oh, Larry, you card, you, you, you cad, you. No, I am not single. I am in a relationship. I've been partnered for the last three and a half years. Uh, my partner's out of town right now, but but he's still a partner, so 
And I am physically based in Las Vegas. I moved out of New York City at the end of May, around Memorial Day, to come here, partly because I was very tired of New York. New York was not the vibe for me at all. Um, and also, I just kind of wanted to move back west. I wanted to live in a place where it was less expensive to launch a new venture. This would have been way more expensive to do in New York for an array of reasons, not the least of which is being able to afford to live there. I mean, after NBC let me go, from that period to when I moved, which was about six months, I mean, I was expecting to have more of my savings in my bank account than I have when I left. And I was making network news money, and New York just inhaled all of it. So leaving New York was not a tough decision for me. Nothing against the city, but the city's in kind of a weird place right now. It's crazy expensive, and it just, it just wasn't... It just wasn't for me. I am much more of a West Coast person, and I like it more here. It is a real easy place to live. Um, and I think people don't realize that, like, there are homes in Las Vegas. I think people, some people think that if you work at a casino, you live in a hotel. And that's not the way it works. Like, there are suburbs and neighborhoods and schools and hospitals and parks and lots and lots of parks. It is gorgeous around the Las Vegas Valley. Next time you come to Vegas, leave the Strip. And just go drive a little bit. Like, get off the strip. Go to Spring Mountain Road, which is where Chinatown is. There is a massive Chinatown here. It's got a huge Asian American and Pacific Islander population. Massive. The mountains west of town, the Red Rocks uh, nature area west of town is majestic. If you just, you can't see it from the strip. But once you get off the strip and on the other side of the highway that runs parallel to the strip, which is Interstate 15, and you look west... It is just, it's, it's the West. It's gorgeous. It's mountains. It's multi-layered mountains that have different colors of rocks. It's like painted mountains. You can drive. It's like a 13-mile drive. It takes about a half hour to go through it. And the minute you get into those mountains, you are out of civilization. Like you go from fancy neighborhood with upscale casino to mountains and chaparral. And you have no idea which way civilization is. I mean, there are still wild horses in Nevada. There are wild burros in Nevada. This is a gorgeous state. Very sparsely populated. Nevada is the least populous state in the country in terms of density. But it is gorgeous out west of here. Once you get to the edge of the Las Vegas Valley and then beyond to Mount Charleston. So that's where I'm physically based now. And I have this many regrets about moving out of New York City. It was grateful to be able to go, but you know, it's it's it was time for something else. It was time for something else. Let's get to another question. I'm across this one off to Larry. I'm taking Larry. Goodness sake, you 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 bad man. Just trying to come after all of my my delicacies and my purity and my 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 virginal self, I can't be talking to all these strange men on television. What's wrong with you? Write me a postcard. Let me get to a question from Substack. Susan asked, hello, Joshua. I'm wondering, radio, television, podcasting, does one of these feel like your journalistic home? That's a really good question. And I think, I think I would have had a clearer answer five or 10 years ago. But today they're all kind of like, like, where does one end and the other begin? You don't, you don't really know. Now, I don't necessarily think that's good, right? I don't necessarily like the fact that everything is kind of in the soup together. I do not appreciate the fact that 
corporate executives and that Silicon Valley, you know, tech bros have dictated to artists what their art is worth. I think that's stupid. But way of the world being what it is, everything's kind of blurred together. Like I said, there are people who, when I was in DC doing 1A at the height of the show's success while I was there, they had no idea that I was working on a live program. They only heard it as a podcast. And so it made sense to them that it was a podcast. And then when this person shows up and he's like, I just finished doing the show, it's live. They were like, what? I said, yeah, every day, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern. What? They had no idea. All people know is that it's, it's, it's a show they like, right? It's a program they like. I hate the term content. Content feels like filler. And I don't consider this interaction, this time that you've chosen to invest in me, filler. I think that's disrespectful to you to just call it all content. Like, just throw them some stuff. It's just chum for the sharks. You know, it just, it just feels diminutive and it feels rude. And I just, I, I, don't, I don't get that. So I don't know where the lines begin and end. What I am trying to do, and I wish I had another camera that I could loop in. I thought I could do it on my phone. Maybe I'll, I'll try to do it on my phone again. But what I wanted to do is to make it so that I can kind of create a program. I'm just looking at my phone to see if I can use this as a remote camera. To kind of create a program that allows me to, to do one show that can exist as video, audio, live, on-demand, podcast, live stream, paid, free, premium, ads, no ads. Create one program and it just spits out in all those different directions and becomes whatever you choose it to be. I do not like the fact that, say, Netflix will interrupt one of my favorite shows to serve me an ad. You know, like, I, was, I don't like having a heartfelt moment in Oprah Winfrey's interview with Viola Davis where she's talking about growing up in Rhode Island. She's like, I, had to, I thought I was ugly and I had to learn to look at myself in the mirror and say, no, Viola, you really are beautiful. You're a beautiful young woman. And then like a good neighbor, all of a sudden, like that's just stupid to me. I'm like, go back to Viola. Don't be disrespectful to Viola Davis like that. I don't want that experience. I want them to feel more seamless. And the technology is there. It's just people need to decide Wherever you come to meet us, we're going to meet you right there, and we're not going to judge you for not being more lucrative to us right now. You know, we're going to advantage you if you're willing to invest in what we're doing, but we're not going to make it so that the free experience is kind of sucky and cobbled together. I, I just think that just feels disrespectful to me. So I'm not sure where I'm going to be in my journalistic home. I'm not even sure, I'm a sadist. So don't, but don't, just let me finish it. I'm not even sure that my home long-term is going to be journalism per se. I don't know if that is the right wrapper for what it is I'm trying to do. I'm not sure if that's the right term for it or the right tone for it. Maybe it is, but journalism also comes with some other strictures and restrictions that I discovered working particularly at NBC, which was a great company, but a lot of the way that it's practiced at the highest levels right now, I just kind of chafe at, and it just, it just didn't vibe for me. So I don't know. We will see where my journalistic home is one of these days. These are great questions. I appreciate you sending all these. Let me get to, let me just take a look at the questions that are in the chat right now. 
Glad to see you guys chatting away. Let's see. Um, let's get a question from Katie. Let me see if I can bring Katie's question in. Katie asked, I love the way that you've started to bring your own experiences into your professional life. Since doing so, do you find it hard to keep your professional detachment from issues that matter? Good question, Katie. I do not find it difficult because I found a way to sort of structure this for myself and to talk about it in a way that feels right for me. I think what you're talking about is objectivity, right? Being impartial as a journalist. I have come, and, and 1A really cemented this for me. I have come to think of myself less as, a, as a, an objective journalist and more as a clinical journalist. Here's what I mean by that. If I was studying cancer, right? I'm not objective about cancer. I want cures. But I have to go into the lab and just accept the sample for what it is and study it for what it is, unbiased. Or else any of the information I get is useless to me in the search for a cure. I can't sit there at my lab and go, God damn it, glioblastoma multiforme, I hate you so much. Like, that's just stupid. <laughs> and when you think of it that way, it just sounds insane. But that's what we do as journalists. We cuss out the samples of real life that we have instead of just accepting them for what we are, not agreeing with them, accepting them for the sake of thoroughly, fully understanding them. I am not objective about racism, but I can have a very arm's length clinical conversation with someone who, for example, venerates the Confederate flag. I can ask questions like, where did this belief come from for you? What was the first time you can remember looking at a Confederate flag and what did you feel? How does it feel to see people opposing the flying of this flag? What does it represent to you? What does it mean to you that the public opinion against this flag is almost solidly against its removal? Those kinds of questions help me just understand. And then once I have understanding, then we can talk about solutions. But unless we're having an apples to apples conversation with trustworthy, useful information, what good is the conversation at all? I am not objective about sexism. I think if you are a man who treats women like girls, then you are not a man, you're a boy. But I can have a very clinical conversation about the shifting roles of manhood and masculinity because that is the only way to move the conversation forward. We cannot have solutions-oriented conversations unless we're having the same conversation about the same thing. How are we gonna have useful discussions if you and I are working from different sets of data? It's dumb, it won't work. That's why so much of what we see is so unsatisfying, right? Because you spend an hour watching your favorite show and you walk away just as pissed as you were when you tuned in and nothing gets better. Nothing except the bank accounts of the people who's, who are paid to keep you pissed. Everything's better for them because they don't have to raise their game. And I think it's time for everyone's game to be raised. That's one of the things I'm trying to do with the nightlight and with my other work is to raise the game and say, this should be better. We should be continually iterating the work that we do and we're not. We should be making this better and better. So for me, 
I found that a clinical, and again, this is my science background, right? This is my mother taking me to temple for the summers and me learning about science from the inside and realizing the value of being a researcher and a clinician who, you know, a, a guy comes in and he split his head open, his glass everywhere because he was drunk and he fell down and he hit a, a table and his wife is screaming and yelling and blood is everywhere. You can be mad at him for being stupid, but you have a patient to deal with. Just, just deal with what's in front of you. I think that clinical approach, and I'm grateful to Temple for this, allowed me to begin to ask those questions of other things. Well, what if I just dealt with what was in front of me? What if I didn't actually judge the people I'm covering? I have learned that you cannot judge someone and serve someone at the same time. Let me say that again. I cannot judge you and serve you at the same time. One will cannibalize the other. So since judging you clearly doesn't do any good, maybe I just serve. You know, maybe I just decide, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll cuss you out when I get home. <laughs> but I don't need to cuss you out to your face. Maybe if I just give myself permission to compartmentalize my judgments, I don't have to disavow them, right? I don't have to pretend that racism is cool with me or sexism, or homophobia, or Islamophobia, or any of that. But to pretend that all things are equal, that's what I think people think of when they think of impartiality and objectivity. And that's, that's why it gets weird, because people are like, ah, oh, we know you've got biases. You're damn right I got biases. Shit, I'm a black man in America. I'm biased as hell. But I'm not going to impute my biases on you, because I think there's a higher option to, to choose. I'm not going to pretend not to be black. I'm not going to pretend that racism doesn't matter to me. But I can elect temporarily in the role that I have chosen in this interaction to set it aside for the sake of doing a job without forsaking my humanity. I don't have to lie about who I am. I'm not going to lie about who and what I am. But I see value in being able to just go, okay, let me try to understand what I'm looking at. And then, when at, at another time, come back to the personal and connect all of those things in a useful way that's more about service than judgment. That's a super long-winded answer. <laughs> I hope that, that makes sense. But that's kind of how I view my place in all of this, and that's sort of how I, I, I'm approaching it. That's how I'm moving forward with this. You can watch the full Ask Me Anything on my YouTube channel. Subscribe online at youtube.com slash at the nightlight show. Remember both symbols slash at the nightlight show. I would love to hear from you on anything you heard tonight. And I'm just going to reiterate one part of my little crisis that would really be great to get some ideas on. As I said, I feel like I have to give up something to make room for what needs to happen next. What might that be if we're going to move forward with advancing democracy in ways that get results? and that don't burn us out in the process, what do we have to give up? And what should we make more room for? Let me know. Email me, joshua at nightlightshow.com. Let me know where you live, how to pronounce your name. I'll share some of your responses and your ideas next time. This program comes to you from Sun Arts Media, dedicated to conversation, creation, and connection. If you want to see this kind of work impact America for the better, if you believe in the need to create more spaces to defend and to nourish democracy, 
then I encourage you to support the show as a paid subscriber online at nightlightshow.com. So until we meet again, I'm Joshua Johnson. Thank you so much for making time for me. And please keep on shining because someone somewhere needs your light right now.